Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. It's our hope that the next few moments lead you closer to Jesus, encourage you to grow, and equip you to exist for those not yet here. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that we can bring you fresh content every week as you continue in your walk with Christ. You guys look great. Everybody in Montgomeryville, it's good to be with you as well if you're joining us online. Hey, I want to remind you, we live stream this 930 service, so don't embarrass me. Number one, I won't embarrass you. And number two, just get on right now if you're, if you're a Facebook person, YouTube person, and just share. Share that, that share on your Facebook page. Let people know that church is going on. It's a great way to invite people into what's happening uh, today. Today we are in week number two of a sermon series we call The Wild Goose. The, the goal is, I want you to understand the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and I want you to understand how he works in, in your life. And he, here's, here's the question for you. I asked the 8 o'clock service. They weren't down with this. Are you prepared for him to mess you up a little bit? Don't say yeah if you're not, right? Like, Because oh, that, that's a terrifying thing. Are you prepared to, to let him mess you up just a, a little bit? Last week, I, I introduced you to this concept of the description of the Holy Spirit as the wild goose. And so it was new to me. It's found uh, in history through the Celtic believers. And so the Celtic believers kind of came after Christianity started in Jerusalem. Roman Empire was there. Then the Greeks kind of took over. And they, they were around at that point too. And then the Celtics were kind of up towards England. And the Romans were, were very, if you ever read the book of Romans, it's very doctrinal. It's very, you know, matter of fact. The Romans roads, right? They're very organized. The Greeks, they're very poetic. And, you know, they, were, they, they like to argue and they like to, you know, debate and, and, and stuff like that. The Celtic believers uh, were very in tune with, with nature and that part of, of reality. They were very uh, uh, aware of how, how God moved, what it, what it felt like in the midst of everything around them. And they, they, they took it from scripture where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's like, like a wind. Like you, you don't even know where it's going. You got to try to keep, keep up with it. And so actually my mom, she visited, they visited, my mom and dad visited my, our, our house last Saturday, uh, Sunday night and she said, hey, did you ever hear the story of the Celtic missionaries? I said, no, I never even heard of the Celtics until last week except for the basketball team and I hate them. And so, <laughs> right? And so, uh, but she sent me this article. It was awesome. So the Celtic uh, believers, they very much practiced this, this following of God's spirit. They were very much all about letting him do what he wants to do. Their plans are not the most important. His plans are. And so they began uh, to develop a missionary mindset where they would send out people to the mission field all over England to share this gospel of Jesus that had changed their life. And so they prepared, they prayed, uh, they strategized, they, they organized, and they came up with this plan. And here was the plan because they truly believed, believed in the wild goose. And so they used to send out missionaries, and the way they would send them out is they would take these boats called coracles. Coracles, I never heard of it. You can Google it later. And coracles were just small fish, fishing boats, things like that. Usually, you controlled them with an oar, and you would get to where you wanted to go. But here's what they did for these missionaries. After they prayed and prepared, they would stick them in a boat. They would push them off of the shore. And what they would say is, wherever the stream, the current, and the wind takes you, wherever you land, that's where you're going to go tell people about Jesus. Could you imagine that? Hey, where are you going? I don't know. I'm in the coracle right now. Wherever he takes me, wherever my feet hit, and the strategy worked, by the way. They went all over Europe, 
and told people all over the place about the gospel of Jesus. So this book that I'm reading is about stepping into a wild goose chase, so to speak, when it comes to being about God's spirit, having control in, in your life. In fact, he, here's what he, he wrote in, in the book, Mark Batterson, and I just I love that it's been resonating with me. He says this, he says, I want God to do things in and through me that I am absolutely incapable of so that I can't possibly take credit for them. I love that. I want God to do things in my life that I can't do outside of the power of the Holy Spirit so that I have to give credit to the Holy Spirit, right? And so let me just ask you, so let me just put up a diagram for you. If, that, if that's the, the truth, that's our prayer. This is, a, this is the diagram he used in the book, and I loved it. It's a scale, and he gave two options. And I want you to tell me, not out loud, but I want you to think about where are you at right now in life as a believer? You play it safe, right? Logical, planned out, um, thought out, strategized, five-year planning, you know what I'm talking about? Type A personality, control everything, or are you living dangerously? If the scales were to tip, where would you, you be at? I can tell you as a 43-year-old pastor that's gone through some different moments in my life, if I'm not careful, you know where I want to land? I don't need to play dangerously anymore. I've done enough of that. That's scary. I'll just play it safe. I'll just, I'll just go through the motions. I'll just make it to the end. How many more years can I actually do this? I've done it for 20. I got 15 years. We can coast. We got money in the bank. We got a nice building now. We got kids areas. We got people coming to church. People even come when it's raining. This is incredible. Years ago, rain would have ruined Sunday. So what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to play it safe. I wonder how many of you, if I said, hey, where are you at in your life? If I'm talking about logical, educated, doing what I think is best all the time, you know, never stepping outside in faith. I know the Holy Spirit's asking, but it doesn't really make sense to me. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have the plan. Where are you at? Are you playing it safe? Or are you living dangerously? And he, here's why. Here's what he says. He says, most of us, most of us, if we're honest, we want to live a life that's filled with passion. And we start out pursuing it, but most of us end up, end up settling for a paycheck. Most of us. Most of us spend our life making a living, but not really living a life. He goes on to say, we'd rather succeed oftentimes at something that doesn't matter than possibly step outside of our comfort zone at, and fail at something that has purpose and that we love. And so we spend our lives climbing a ladder that ultimately doesn't lead to success. He, he calls this phenomenon in Christianity the caged Christian. The caged Christian. So because I wanted you to see this for the next few weeks, I got a cage. And somebody said, can I have this for my kid afterwards? <laughs> Make me an offer, right? There's no roof, and so they won't stay in there, right? And so, but most of us live what he calls a caged Christianity. A caged Christianity. The problem with the cage is from the outside, the cage looks like a prison. That's why you laugh when I said it was for your kids. Doesn't look like somewhere you want to be. But if you get on the inside and you're there long enough, the cage actually goes from something that looks like a prison to something that feels like it keeps you safe. You ever wonder the animals that are in the zoo, if they ever think to themselves, this cage sucks. They don't. 
because they're fed, well-maintained. Some of them have been born in the cage. They don't even know what it's like to be outside. And they're in the cage, and the cage feels safe. It's taught them. It keeps you safe from the weird human staring through the glass at you. But the animals that are outside of the cage are looking at the animals inside of the cage going, man, your life is awful. And my question is, is built right from this book that he asked me that really shook me up. Are you living a caged Christianity? Are you living a Christianity where you basically said to the Holy Spirit, hey, Holy Spirit, I'm in control. Just keep me safe. In fact, there's room for two. Just get in here with me. Everywhere we go, Holy Spirit, we carry this cage with us. Come to church and cage me up, right? Some of you are already in your cage. Like, we sang three songs. You sing three songs. Today we sang four songs. What's going on? I'm all messed up, right? They lose track of time. They don't do the monkey, right? And you got that cage, right? The cage. Like, oh, I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship God. I'm going I'm to worship God as long as it's, you know, in the cage. As long as it's comfortable. I'm going to do what God asks me to do as long as it's comfortable. So here's the first cage many Christians struggle with. You ready? The cage of responsibility. Now, not every message will be for every person in every moment of your life. Because some of you are like, I don't pay my bills. I don't show up to work on time. I, I don't pay my child support, my, you know, whatever. And he's about to preach the first message that is applicable to me. Thank you very much, Pastor. Right? That's not what it's about. I'm not talking about your, your irresponsibility. Like, I'm talking about the cage of responsibility. When God asks you to do something, he's like, hey, step out that cage. You're like, no, it's not financially responsible. It's not a financially responsible decision for me. Or God asks you to uh, step out. Man, some of you have been in school for year, like years. Like years. You're going to school for something you don't even care about, but it's going to pay you well. Years. And you put so much time in. And God says, come on now. I put you on this earth for more than or, for more of a paycheck. And he's beginning to open the door. You're like, no. This is not academically responsible. He's that big word, right? Like it's. It's not academically responsible. Some of you guys asking you to break up with somebody. Like, you're in a relationship, and let's just be honest. It's not going anywhere. You're, you're, you've, been, you've been in the cage so long. Whoa, you're sitting. What would have happened if I would have fell? I'd have been on video forever, right? And, 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 and you, it's so long you're sitting on the cage. You've gotten comfortable on the cage. And the Holy Spirit's saying, this is enough. I want you to come out of the cage of responsibility in your relationship because I got something better for you. But it's not. I spent so much time invested into this relationship. Yeah, but the return sucks. It's the only spot you'll keep putting money in and losing, right? In the stock market, they call you an idiot. I'm just putting it in there, but it's going to work out. And he's saying, hey, no, no, no. Come out of the cage of responsibility. And he's saying, hey, you look, look, look. If you could see from my point of view, you're actually living in a prison right now. You don't even see it. The cage of responsibility. And, and, and here, here's, here's why this is so important. is because oftentimes we'll make what I would call the responsible response to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to just be responsible. And here's the problem with the responsible response. First thing is this. Is sometimes the will of God seems downright irresponsible. Sometimes. I say oftentimes. The will of God in your life, when he first comes to you, it seems downright irresponsible. Some of you like, prove it. Okay, let me just go through the Bible for you. God comes to a man named Noah. Noah's minding his own business in the desert. He has a family. He has a couple kids. His sons are getting married. He's minding his own business. And what does God ask him to do in the middle of a desert with no rain? 
build a what? Build a boat, right? Build a structure. He didn't know it was called an ark. We said that, right? He don't even know what he's building. What are you doing, Noah? I don't know. Are you planning on something happening? I don't know. Here's what I know. God told me to build it. But Noah, you didn't go to school for construction. What are you going to do? What are your blueprints? I don't know. God gave me some. Well, where are they at? They didn't even pass code, right? Like, I'm just going to do what God has called me to do. It's irresponsible. Abraham, living in his, home, his homeland, has a good family, whatever, and God comes along, and his will is, hey, I need you to leave the country you were born in and go to a country you've never been, ever. Take your family, you know, pack up everything that belongs to you, and go to this country. Could you imagine them asking Abraham, hey, Abraham, where are you going? I don't really know. What is it like there? I don't know. I've never been there. What are you doing? I'm, I'm doing what God's called me to do. Think, think about in the New Testament when, when, Peter, when Peter's in the, in the storm and he comes and walks on water. That's really irresponsible for Jesus to ask him to do that, right? That's an irresponsible ask. Or how about when Saul, uh, Jesus, or God calls Jesus or Saul to go be a missionary and preach the gospel to the world as he's murdering Christians in the middle of that? He, he meets them, Jesus does, change his heart, and sends them out. How irresponsible of that was, was of, of, to God when he sent Paul back to the apostles and, and they're like, hey, who is it? They're like, he's like, it's Saul, the guy who was just killing you. Let me in. I promise you I won't do it again. It's completely irresponsible. The will of God oftentimes begins with an irresponsible ask from God. I know this from personal experience. In the last 15 years of my life, there has been so many times, really 18 years, of Start and Journey Church where God has asked us to do things that don't make sense. How many of you know that the Super Bowl of churches is uh, Christmas and Easter? You know that? If you plan a church to tell you, you better, better show up on Easter, you better show up on Easter, right? And you better show up on, on Christmas. You better have a good service on, on Easter. You better have sing some carols and do candlelight on Christmas. Those are the two days everybody comes to church. And if you can get them to come to church, maybe you can retain some of them and you can build your church. The second year of us being a church, we barely had anybody at our church. I clearly heard the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit say, don't have Christmas Eve service this year. I said, what? I said, are you sick of carols too? I am as well, right? He says, I want, you, I want you to tell your church. I want you to collect the offering. I want you to tell your church we're going to go uh, to the Boyertown Inn uh, on Christmas Eve. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pack up baskets for them and give it to every, every resident there. They're down and out. And you're going to cook a meal. And you're just going to have a meal. You're not going to do church. You're not going to sing any Christmas carols because at that point we didn't have no musicians really. And so you're just going to cook a meal and hang out and let them know that God came to the earth for them as well. That's the, that's the definition of Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we closed church and we went there and it felt ridiculous and it felt stupid and it felt irresponsible. But what God was doing is he was establishing in 2000. 2006 even, that we were going to be a church filled with contributors, not consumers. It was completely irresponsible. When we closed down our Limerick campus in 2012 in the summer, it was right around this time. We prayed. God said, do it. We said, okay, we're going to close down Limerick. We're going to go to Phoenixville. We're going to have church in Phoenixville in a building that we don't own. Everybody said, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? It doesn't make sense. This is completely what? Irresponsible. This is not being a good steward of what you've been entrusted with. I get it. But this is what God called us to. We went there the first week. It was a whopping success. We went from 400 people to 300 people. And God was weeding out the consumers in our church. We were going to be a church filled with contributors, not consumers. Blessing, not a burden. We were going to exist for those not yet here. I remember back in 2020 when, when everybody freaked out and we 
Everybody closed down everything, and the church closed down because we didn't know what was going on, and we were just trying to be team players. And then we quickly realized, as a church, uh, beer distributors are still open and things like that. And if they're essential, then I think the church is probably essential. And so we opened up the church. You know what the number one argument on when we opened back up the church was? You're being what? Irresponsible. I remember telling people, I, I, I might be being irresponsible, and there might be a risk, but you're always taking a risk. What's a greater risk? People dying and going to hell without Jesus or having church with somebody get COVID. And you're just, all, all throughout your life, all throughout your life, if you want to follow the Spirit of God and be responsible, it's going to be really hard to step out into His will. Because he's going to come and ask. He's say, hey, it's time to step out. The will of God often starts with irresponsibility in your life. In fact, pursuing a God-ordained passion, what I would call a go passion, when he opens up the cage and he says, hey, it's time to take that next step in your life, no matter how crazy that sounds to you, is the most responsible thing you can do. When God opens up that cage and he says, hey, here, here I am, I'm, I'm coming, Holy Spirit's asking me up. The most responsible thing you can do is to be ridiculously irresponsible in that moment. I don't fully understand it. I don't know every detail of it. I don't have a five-year plan. But if the Celtic missionaries can get in a boat and float to wherever and just say, I'm going to trust you, God, then in this moment, I'm going to trust the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is I want to show you one of my favorite examples. This is probably my favorite Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah. If you're a business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a pyramid ski person, book of Nehemiah is for you, right? Like this book is amazing, right? Like it, it is a, a classic example of somebody who, who God, I'm going to get an email, somebody who called, right? Somebody who called and said, hey, go do this. And he said, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm qualified, but God, you called me to do it. So I'm going to step outside of my cage of responsibility and I'm going to follow you in an irresponsible way. Let me set up, set up the, 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 the text. And so Nehemiah is, is in the Old Testament. It, the book is written around 444 BC. That's the timing of the book. Uh, but really the story of Nehemiah begins in 556 BC. In 556 BC, the, the Jewish people were a mess. It's kind of, kind of, current and common for them is every time stuff went well, they forgot God. You ever been there? Every time. Anytime there was peace in the country and they were, they were riding on success, they forgot God. Because we don't, often, we don't often mishandle failure. We usually lean into God through failure, but we oftentimes mishandle success. That's the story of the Jewish people. Uh, God gives them a, a, a prophet. His name's Jeremiah. Read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, was called to go tell the Jewish people, stop. Please stop. Please knock it off. Please stop worshiping false gods. Please stop sacrificing your babies to false gods. Please stop pursuing the God of money. Please follow what God has called you to follow. If not, here's what the Bible says is going to happen. Here's what the word of the Lord is. He's going to come and he's going to allow us to be destroyed. So can we just stop? You ever been there with people? And nothing ever happens, and so they kind of just ignore it. Some of us do that with God all the time. Where God's like, hey, this is going to happen if you keep doing it. But you're like, well, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm probably getting away with it. You actually haven't gotten away with it, it'll be even worse. The quicker that God brings his, his, his justice and his, and, and, and his, I don't want to call it holy anger for you, the better and more grace it is to you because the farther you get away, the worse that it gets. So finally, God allows the, the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to come into Jerusalem and destroy it. I want you to visually imagine this. China comes into our, our country. And absolutely destroys everything, burns everything down, everything, everything, destroys every, 
every place that we find sacred, destroys parks that we, we celebrate, goes into Valley Forge and destroys the fake cabins that are there and everything else that is there. The places where you feel patriotic, you know what I'm talking about? The other, other week they did a baseball ceremony and they dropped this probably 50-foot flag from, a, from a, a, a fire truck ladder that went straight up in the air. There's nothing more American than that, right? And I just felt so paid. They come in, they destroy everything. This is what the Bible is. They destroy everything. They destroy temples. They kill people. They exile. Some people get away. And then they go through the population, and they take the best of the best, and they take them back to Babylon, and they indoctrinate them and enslave them. You ever read the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's, that's, that's what happens next. These men go there, and for, for the next 100 years or so, the Jewish people live in captivity and exile away from Jerusalem. And then the Babylonian uh, empire, emperor, uh, an empire begins to crumble, and a new emperor, a new empire shows up on the scene, the Persian Empire. And the, per, the Persian Empire, uh, God, because he's gracious and he always keeps his promise that he was ever always patient with these people, telling them, if you return to me, I'll bring you back home. He begins to work a plan out to bring his people back to Jerusalem, and he does it through the book of Esther. If you've never read the book of Esther, you should read it. Esther wins what was what I would call uh, the, the, a pageant, like the Miss America pageant, but the Miss Persia pageant. Not in the Bible, but we're going to call it that. And so the Miss Persia pageant, and she ends up becoming the queen of the most powerful empire in the world, but she's also a, a Jewish woman. And so the, the, the heart of the, the Persian emperor begins to soften, and he begins to allow some Jewish people to go back to their homeland and rebuild homes and rebuild businesses. And as you can imagine, there's 100 years have passed, there's some people who have only ever heard about their homeland. They've never been there. They don't know what it looks like now. They know what it was once like. So I think in my head, if this happened to my country, that maybe, maybe 100 years would pass or so, and there would be somebody around long enough to remember. Maybe, maybe they remembered a little bit, and they would speak and say, hey, uh, this is how it used to be. This is how it used to look. This is how our parties used to feel. This is how our holidays used to look. And so Nehemiah only has hearsay. He only has a memory. And so here's Nehemiah. And Nehemiah Nehemiah, uh, just to paint a picture of who Nehemiah is, he's incredibly successful in the land of Persia. Incredibly. Now, I'm a, I, I love those conspiracy government shows on Netflix. It seems like they keep coming. Probably true, but we don't know. And so, but I've been watching this one show called The Night Agent, and these people, they want to work in the White House, FBI, CIA. When I thought about it, I started thinking about Nehemiah. This is kind of like Nehemiah. He wasn't an agent. He wasn't cool like that. But he had risen so much up in, the, in the, the economy and in the structure of the Persian Empire that he was working basically in the White House. He was working for the king, the emperor. He had an amazing job, even though he was of Jewish descent. He worked hand in hand. I can imagine him going to years of schooling, right, and had years of success and got the right internships and had the right connections. And now he has a great life. And if you look at his life, it's almost caged in because he works for the, a king, a foreign king. He's of Jewish descent, but his life is good. See, the problem with the cage of responsibility, it's often not that bad. It's often not that bad. He's in the cage. He's just chilling. And the Bible says in, the, in this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 1, that he has this moment in his life. And I love this moment. It changes everything. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 1 says, These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 12th, uh, 20th year, which I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah 
with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So they had, they had gone, man. You just think about it. You ever talk to somebody to come back from, from somewhere you've never been? Can you explain this to me? What's going on? And here's how his brother describes it. He says, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Very matter-of-factly. I, I went to Africa, the continent. I walked in this country, third world country. I saw a bunch of hungry kids. I also went on a safari and saw a giraffe. Very matter-of-factly. There's kids dying of malaria, but I saw a, a, a zebra in the wild. It was amazing. Just very matter-of-factly. Well, that was your trip. It was good. Saw some old friends, family members. Everything's tore up. The people are going to die. Mom, what's for dinner? That's a very matter-of-fact thing. Well, what are we doing? The Bible says, when I heard these things, he says, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. I don't have time to read his prayer. But he goes into this prayer where he reminds God of God's godness, right? He reminds God of God's promises. I love this. When you pray, pray facts from Scripture. God, here's who you are. Here's what you said you'll do. Even if you haven't done it yet, God, I believe it because your word is always true. God, here's what you said. Here's what you'll do. Here's what I believe about you. And then he gathers himself, and the Bible says he prepares himself to go speak to his king. Because something's about to shift in his life. And I love how uh, this, this passage of scripture ends in verse number 11. He says, I was a cupbearer to the king. He doesn't say I am. In other words, something is shifting in his life. And I want to show you this. I want to show you what God does in your life when he calls you to go, a God-ordained passion, out of the cage of responsibility. I'm not asking you if your life is good. I'm not asking you if it's structured. I'm not asking you if it's planned. I'm not asking you if you found success in whatever career. What I'm asking you is do you give the Holy Spirit permission to mess that up? Are you willing to say, God, whatever you want to do in my life? So here's the first thing. Number one is this. It's three things that will often happen. One, God will often break something in you before he makes something out of you. Really important. When God calls you to step out of your cage of responsibility, he will often break something in you before he makes something out of you. Do you notice his response? The Bible says when he hears about his people, some of them he's never met in a place he's never seen. What's his response? He weeps, the Bible says. Now, here's the problem with, with crying and weeping, especially for a guy. Because I'm emotionally immature, my wife tells me, and, so, uh, and I have spiritually had to grow up, weeping is not a part of something that I want to do a lot. Anybody else? Like, any, I have boys. What do you think the number one mistake I've made with my boys is when they, come, when they cry? What do you think I say to them? One, one, stop crying. Right? When they come home and they, they, they got hurt and they had to go to the nurse, which I'm like, you don't go to the nurse ever, right? Babies go to the nurse, right? And so... And they come home and they said they got hurt. What, what's the first question I ask them? Did you cry? I know it's bad, right? They're like, you're an awful dad. I know, right? Because crying is not something I want to do. Here's the thing about Nehemiah, why I love him. His job requirement is that he would never be in a bad mood. I want to put that on, on my, my, you know, Indeed thing. I'm looking for people to hire. Never in a bad mood. <laughs> he was never allowed. 
Emotionally, he was allowed to be one way. His cage, right? His cage of responsibility was you are always happy. You are always pleasant. You are always in a good mood. Your job is to taste the wine that the king is going to drink, make sure there's not poison in there, and then serve him. I mean, that is a job where you should be excited, right? Like that is a, that is a good job. And so it, it was proven historically if you walked into the king's presence and you were in a bad mood and you were crying and you were down, kings were known to be like, yo, you're ruining the mood. Kill him. So could you imagine when he hears about this and he starts crying, he can't control it? So, like, oh my God, oh, what's wrong with me? Nehemiah, stop crying. He's talking to himself. Get it together, man. What's happening in his life? Here's what's happening. Is God is breaking something in him because he's about to make something new out of him. Weeping is not a sign of weakness. In fact, weeping is almost always the natural reaction to God's presence in your life. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced this in my life, but I can tell you very specific times when I had that I remember. I remember being saved and called into the ministry when I was 18 years old. Some of you are like, what does that look like? Well, for me, it was tears. Everything about my life up to that point was manufactured. I knew how to play the game. I knew what to do. I was sneaking out of a, of a youth conference, trying to get out of there. They were doing the altar call. It's going to take 45 minutes. It's a Pentecostal altar call, right? Like, I was trying to get out of there. I was trying to find a girl that I liked. I was trying to get to the bathroom. I was just trying to get out of there. And I was going up the steps. And for the very first time in my life, for the very first time in my life, I felt the presence of God. It, 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 it just stopped me. It was like, you're done, right? Sat me down on the, on the this cave, man. Sat me down on the, on the, on the, on the bleachers. And my, I remember I just weeped. And here's what I said to God. And I look back on that and I was like, I don't know if I should have said that. I said, God, you can have my life. That's a scary prayer. Whatever you want to do with my life, you can have it. I know I don't understand this all, and I'm the most disqualified, and I barely passed school, and I don't know what I'm, but hey, God, you can use my life. Weeping. There's oftentimes in this church, when we're going through seasons of this church, that I'll come early by myself in the morning, and I'll just Jericho march. You don't know what Jericho is? Google it. March around these chairs with my AirPods in, and what will I do? I'll sing as loud as I can, and, and I'll just weep in the presence of God. We, weeping is often the result of being deeply in the goodness and the grace and the presence of God. Here's what he says. He says, I need you to do something in my life right now. And it begins with holy sorrow. His strength comes from sorrow. God will often break something in you before he makes something out of you. Let me give you two more. Number two, God will often show you things others seem to miss. This, this is important. Because here's why this is important. Is we're not cookie cutter people. Did you know that? Some of you are not called to stand up on a, on a platform and preach. That's not going to be what God calls you to do. You're born. You're born. You can't do it, right? And so it's the way it is, right? <laughs> like, you know, some of you are like, I got to preach. I'm like, no, you don't. We've had people come through. I'm like, that's not what he's calling you to do, right? And so some people are like, I want to sing. I've had people come up here and be like, I'm going to sing. I'm like, you can't sing. I don't know. Your mom said you could sing. She was lying to you, right? You're not supposed to sing. You know what I'm not supposed to do? I'm not supposed to be a nurse. I barely like touching my kids. You know what I'm talking about? And some of you, you feel, you feel a deep calling to that. Some of you, you feel a deep calling to, to teaching. Some of you feel a deep calling uh, to, to accounting. We got some account, accountants in here. Some of you feel a deep calling to your, your craft. Like you feel a deep connection to what you're call, called to do. And here's where God begins to work in your life. He begins to show you things that others seem to miss. Do you see this? His brother comes home, the wall's down, goes about his business. 
It's very matter of fact. People are living there. People are coming back, forth, back, forth. They're not that worried about it. It happens every day. People go to Africa. People go to Asia. People go on trips. They see needs. People walk into the city of Philadelphia. They see needs. We hear words like Kensington, and some of us, we just go on with our day, and we just kind of mind our own business. But others of us, we hear the word Kensington, and we do something about it. Some of us here of kids that need food, and we literally, God calls us to do something about it. Others of us, we hear about kids that aren't educated the way that we think they should be educated, and we, we get ourselves in a, in a school, and we do something about it. Others of us have heard about how the church is in decline, and we want to do something about it. But what happens in, in your life when God begins to call you to step out of the cage is you begin, you begin to see things, and show, he shows things that others they seem, they seem like it just goes right over their head. You ever been there where you're like, you're having a conversation with somebody and you're looking at something in a tree and as I've gotten older, I started to look at birds. I don't know why you just see birds in your tree. Like, hey, there's a bird. And you try to show somebody the bird and you're like, I don't see it. Like, it's right there. It's red, man. I don't see it, right? Don't get mad at people when they don't see what God's calling you to. Hey, God's calling me. I don't see it. That doesn't make sense. God calls you, and you begin to see things that other people seem, seem to miss. It's just the way that he works. Because we're all different. We're all on different trajectories. We all have different calls. We all, we all have different plans. Listen, I'll explain, I'll explain something to you because I'm called to, to, build, to build a local church. That's what I want to give my life to. You know what, you know what makes me mad right now about, about my life? Some of you get mad about certain things. I hate walking by uh, old churches in the city that have been turned into uh, 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 museums, uh, condominiums, and homes. It pisses me off. It tells me everything that's wrong with church culture. At one point, that church was filled with the vision, but the Bible says without vision, people cast off restraint. It terrifies me because it makes me understand that in 50, 60 years, that this place might not be Journey. It might be owned by Renaissance Academy. They keep growing, and we could raise up a church of, of, of kids that don't understand we exist for those not yet here. And in one generation, this place could be a museum. We'll have to put a plaque that says, hey, at one point in history, this place was hopping with the presence of God. But now it's a Wawa or whatever, right? I, I, some, most people just walk by, it's a museum. Because we see things differently. You see things other people seem to miss. And number three, number three, you begin to care about things, right? Care about things. He will often cause you to care about things that others could care less about. You'll see things others don't see, and you'll care for things others don't care about. And so, you ever... You ever have a moment where you're like emotional for a moment, then you move on with your life? You know what I'm talking about? Like a, it's a movie moment where you're like, oh, that's really touching. What's for dinner? That, that's, by the way, how you know that the Holy Spirit is not calling you to, to go because that's not how he works. When he wrecks you, he wrecks you. Do you see, the, you see Nehemiah's response in this? The Bible says that for months, it wasn't just a week, it wasn't a day, it wasn't emotion, it wasn't Taco Bell, it was months, right? Like months months everything inside of him was messed up his spirit was messed up his mindset was messed up his emotions were out of whack everything about him was messed up and he cared enough the bible says he cared enough to compose himself in this moment after months of prayer and to go before the king and ask the king king 
can I leave my responsibility of being a cupbearer? And can I go back to my homeland? And I want to try to rebuild the wall. And I want you to think about how outlandish of an ask that was. Because I want to remind you, uh, God doesn't call the overqualified. He's not, look, we do this with our lives. We're like, here's my resume. I don't care about your resume. He's not worried about your upbringing, your pedigree, your connections. This, this dude in this cage was the most ridiculous candidate to go rebuild the walls in Jerusalem that there could have been. Now, physically, I want you to envision him. Anybody know a construction worker? Works with their hands. They don't look like me. <laughs> right? Easily tougher. I remember my pappy, he, 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 he worked in the construction world, and you, when you would touch his hands and it felt like sandpaper. Sometimes I judge myself on the lack of sandpaper hands that I have. They're soft. I think Nehemiah probably resembled me more. Like not trying to compare myself to him, but just he would have been probably stylish because he was hanging out with the king. He he was probably pretty educated. He had good taste. He drunk with his you know with his pinky out. He. He, great Poupon, like he was, he was different, right? Like he was into organic, free range. Like he, he was on a good diet, right? Like instruction workers, they eat Wawa and McDonald's and, you know, ICT, right? Like that. he wasn't eating, like he different. And if one of them came and said, hey, I want to leave my job. I'm going to do construction. And I think I'm going to go back and build a, build a wall. It would have been like, yeah, great. Thank you. But that dude, that dude. He's in the cage of responsibility. He's looking at his hands. He doesn't have what it takes. He doesn't have blueprints. He doesn't have connections. He, he, he never built anything in his life. He's a wine taster. He's a cupbearer. He's soft. Holy Spirit calls him. He's wrecked. You can just see him. He's wrecked. And he, he has to make a decision. He opens the cage of the door. And he comes to the king. And he says, hey, king, I want to go back to my homeland. And I, I want to rebuild these walls. These walls were miles around very tall, thick walls. I need to go back and I need to do that. Could you imagine him showing up there? Hey, I'm Nehemiah. Okay, good to meet you. Hey, I haven't ever been here before. I'm here to build a wall. You're what? This wall's been down for a hundred years. And Nehemiah does what God asked him to do, right? Because the first step is always the first step. He obeys God. He takes the journey to Jerusalem. And the Bible says in 52 days, he orchestrates a building project and he rebuilds these walls that have been down for over 100 years. You ever, you ever see something amazing? Like, a, like a, for me, it'd be a ministry that's amazing or somebody's life who's been used in a crazy way. And you think to yourself, man, that would be crazy for God to do that with my life. That would be crazy. And then you hear their story and you're like, they were crazy. I don't want to be that crazy. I want to play it safe. I don't want to make that change. I don't want to say yes to that. Listen. If you want God to move in a crazy way in your life, sometimes it takes a little bit of crazy. Sometimes it takes stepping out of that cage of responsibility and you begin, you see things others don't see and you begin to care about things other people could care less about. So here's what you do. If you're ready, some of you, you're, you're in the cage of responsibility. You're like, what do I do? Here, here's, here's how you begin to figure that out. Three, three things. Number one is this, is you begin to ask yourself, what breaks your heart? What when you think about life, what, not other people, what breaks your heart? What makes you angry in a biblical way? Do you know that 
biblical anger is real. The church needs a little bit more anger in them. Righteous anger. We have too much apathy. We have too much playing it safe. Especially here, we're Philadelphians. We don't do anything safe, right? We, what makes you angry? Listen, what do you care about that others don't? And then you act. What do you do? You do what God has asked you to do, right? But unfortunately, sometimes when you take that next step, there's a, there's a next step. And then wherever that next step leads, you be great there until God tells you to take the next step. And then you take the next step, and you're great there until God takes you, tells you to take the next step. And then you take the next step, and you're great there because of what God's calling you to. I'm telling you, some of you in this place, you're just one yes away. I'm going to crack this door open. One moment away from the Holy Spirit doing something in your life that, listen, you're not capable outside of Him. That's the life I want to live. Would you stay into your feet? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And here's my prayer. It started at 8 o'clock. And if I'm honest, the reason I prayed that it would start at 8 o'clock is because the 8 o'clock service is the hardest service. And so if God can do it there, He can do it here. And in the 8 o'clock service, I just, I just told them, I said, listen, the, what I'm praying for you as a, as, a, as a church, as a service, is that God would begin in a holy way to come into this place and just mess things up. You're not in control. You shouldn't be. There's too much of that. Too many people I know li live in a cage. You think it's safe, but it's really a prison. It's keeping you from something, not getting you to something. You carried it around for a long time. Some of you, you've been in church in a culture so long that living in a cage is just normal. Yeah, I know the Holy Spirit's there, but I got to do the work on my own. I got to figure it out by myself. And sometimes the biggest work of the Holy Spirit in your life, just one yes. Yes. So here's what I pray. I pray that, number one, that we would be a church that was fully available to being messed up by God. Why don't you just say that? Holy Spirit, mess me up. Mess me up. I've been, I, I've been trying to control everything in my life up to this point. And if we're just doing some studying and some seeking, we realize we're not doing a good job. So, some of you, uh, the, the greatest cage of responsibility you're living in is trying to be responsible for your life as a whole. Interestingly enough, this cage has a door and the Bible says, uh, Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If you would open it up, I'd come into your life. I love that. That you have the responsibility that God, he won't open it, that you're going to have to open it yourself. You're going to let him in though. And if you would just let him in, he would come be with you. That he would begin to make sense of things. That he would begin to guide and lead you. That he would fill you. That he would comfort you. The Bible says that he's an ever-present help in a time of need. That he would empower you. That he would call you. That he would lead you. Hey, listen. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Your life is not too messy. You're not too far. The Bible says before the foundations of the world that your creator was thinking about you. I want you to think about that. 
that he put you on this earth for such a time as this. He wants to be a part of your life. He wants to walk with you and talk with you and guide you if you let him. So maybe the first thing is I'm going to let the Spirit of God. I've been trying to be responsible for myself, but I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I need, I need him to guide me. I need him to direct me. I want him to come into my life. If, if, you're, if you're here and that's you, the Bible says that if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That he came to this earth and he died on a cross for our sins. He was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, the Bible says that he rose in power. And it's through him that we have sins forgiven and the promise of eternity. The Bible says that he'll fill us with joy, unspeakable joy. And an eternal purpose. It starts there. Start, that's where you first give up control. Jesus Christ be the Lord and the Savior of my life. So maybe that's you as we get ready to pray and we ask the Spirit of God to move in this place. You say, that's me. I don't know Jesus Christ here in Montgomeryville online, but I need to. I need him to ask, I need to ask him to forgive my sins, heal me, and make me whole. I'm going to open up my life to him today. You can see it in a practical way. I've been locked off. I've been closed up. I've been running, but I'm not going to do that anymore. There's freedom for me here today. Today, I need Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. All over this place, if you say, hey, that's me. God's knocking at the door of my heart, but today I need to let him in right now. I need to let him into my life. If that's you, would you just shoot your hand straight towards heaven and say, hey, pastor, you're speaking to me right now. I need Jesus Christ to heal me, to make me whole. There's a hand right here. Is there anybody else? I need him to forgive me. I need him to set me free. If you're in Montgomeryville, maybe you just keep your hand held high. I know it's weird, but I found there's something powerful when you take a courageous step in faith. Almost a line in the sand. Today's my day. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it has, it has the power to save someone like me. And as we pray and we thank God for moving here in Montgomeryville and even online, maybe you're in this place and you would just pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, you can have my life. You can do whatever you want to do in my life. And some of you, you already know. Like he's already been knocking at the door of responsibility. He's already been calling you to step out. And you've been running. You've been afraid. And so what you're going to pray is for a little bit of Holy Spirit courage. Others of you, you've never given him permission. You've never given him permission. You can have my life. I dare you to pray that. You can have my life. You can do with me what you made me for. I'll follow you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for my friends that raised their hand all over our campuses. And today they're saying, I'm going to be a new person. Jesus Christ is going to be Lord and Savior of my life. And so right now, by faith, they're putting their trust in you. Lord, thank you, Father, as they pray that simple prayer that you meet them here in this moment that you do what only you could do, that you change, you transform, you comfort, and you fill. From the very bottoms of their feet to the tops of their heads, they can fill you in this place. They're leaving this a new person. And Lord, I pray right now for those that, are, that actually have guts enough. They're not checked out right now, but Lord, right now they're saying to you, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. 
You can do what you want. I thank you, Lord, in advance for the new ministries that are going to be born, for the new needs that are going to be met, Lord, for those that thank are going to follow you in a scary your day mindset. To to Lord, they're going to step outside you decide of their to own your life fears, to Jesus and they're going to follow you with courageous faith. Lord, I thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Visit Amen with me. Let's clap together.